Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mike Millian is the president of the Private Motor Truck Council of Canada. Mike's been on the air with us on a number of occasions in the last week, was on with us yesterday. Uh, Mike, what's your sense? You just heard David Aiken talk about what he uh, what he has seen and what he's heard. And uh, doesn't call it the trucker convoy anymore, calls it the protesters convoy. What's your sense of what's, what's gone on? And what do you want to say about this? Well, I mean, thanks for having me on again, Roy. But some of the stuff we saw from a, a small minority yesterday, I mean, we condemn it in the in the strongest possible terms. Uh, people that act like that have no respect um, for anybody else, for for society. Um, the industry itself, and I, I agree with David. This, you know, the majority of this protest is is no longer trucks. There's trucks in it, but there there isn't many. And you know, I've spoke to people around there who have spoke to drivers that are in it and said the majority of them have been respectful and and polite. Um, it, it's these hangers-on that are that are giving this entire thing a terrible name, and there's there's no way you can defend actions like that. I mean, Terry Fox is the most well-known Canadian worldwide. Yes, he's a hero to everybody. Yeah. Uh, the National War Memorial. I mean, we have a number of truckers who are veterans that serve in this industry, and there's nothing more disgraceful than desecrating the the tomb. Um, of our war heroes of, of, of the past and the present. Like, you, you can't defend these things. And then the stuff we hear about, <clears throat> excuse me, not wearing a mask, we can agree with, with mandates or not, but you're, you're protesting some of these people. The fringe are out there protesting for their rights and freedoms, but they don't seem to respect anybody else's rights or freedoms if they act like this. They, don't, they only want freedom of speech and freedom of choice if it's their speech and, and their choice that, that is respected. Well, that's not the way society works. And, you know, it's, it's, I just hope people understand this is not what the industry represents. We put a statement out yesterday, and you know, this is not representative of the industry. Yeah, let's Do talk about Do not stain the industry with this. And, you know, will there be a small percentage of, of truckers in this down there that have those views? Of course there will, because there's a small percentage of society that unfortunately holds these despicable views and, and do these actions. I mean, Walking around with a flag upside down, walking around with a Nazi yeah. flag, walking around with a Confederate flag. I mean, th- these are views that the majority of people just don't don't support. No, and we cannot. No, and you have to speak out against it. Yeah. I've a lot of people. And you know what? I hope they get charged. You know, un- unfortunately, when we put these things on social media, the people that do these acts are getting what they want. They're getting notoriety. Well, what they should do is get charged. For, for their despicable acts, not get notoriety. Yeah, you, you and I uh, communicated about something we wanted to talk about, and we have two and a half minutes to do it now. But let's do it, because the trucking industry is in the news and has become more in the news over the last week plus because of the convoy. But there are really significant issues that affect trucking in this country, and we've talked to trucking firm owners. We've heard that as well. We've heard it from you. What would you say are the most significant issues because trucking is so critical to the movement of the supply chain. Everything that we have, as Ron Foxcroft has told me a hundred times, everything you own arrived at a truck on a truck. What is what are the most critical issues or important issues that face your industry, Mike? 
Yeah, and there's a number, uh, Roy, and I think I emailed you in two or three, and there's another one I may add if there's time. But, I mean, I've been in this industry for 32 years. I spent the first eight of them as a truck driver myself. Um, and when I get into this industry, two of the things we were talking about, and we're still talking about, is an extreme lack of parking that's available to truck drivers when they're out on the road. Drivers have to follow hours of service rules, regulations. Obviously, you need safe places to pull over and rest. And there's an extreme lack of, of publicly funded rest areas in Canada supplied by the governments. And this has been an issue for years that you know, still hasn't been addressed uh, properly. There's an extreme lack of proper washroom facilities for drivers to use, both from a publicly funded end, and, and I do believe that we, we should be relying on governments to put rest areas in and, and washrooms in when you know we're, we need these drivers to be safe out on the road to deliver our goods. So governments have to take some responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. And there's an extreme shortage of both. And then we also have it's been an issue for a lot of years where some customers won't let drivers use their washrooms, which was really uh, brought out at COVID when things were being closed yeah. down. Governments got involved yeah. and encouraged industries to, to open up. But, you know, when you have a driver delivering goods to you that you need to run your business, for God's sakes, let them use your washroom. Yeah. Like I, and yeah. a proper washroom is not a porta potty in the parking lot. One of the issues, and we're hearing politicians like Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, saying, finally, that COVID is going to be something we're going to have to learn to live with. We're hearing it from other premiers. Premier Mo Saskatchewan, who's on this program quite regularly with us, uh, said uh, that the VAX passports are uh, not going to be part of the equation in Saskatchewan much longer. And Premier Kenny is saying similar things in, uh, in Alberta. He's also good enough to join us on the program. And uh, here we are. We're looking at other jurisdictions where they have, in fact, essentially lifted the restrictions. And one of those jurisdictions is England, which has returned to what it calls Plan A to deal with COVID. And as I understand it, the restrictions are almost all gone. Masks are no longer necessary, except in specific circumstances. And vaccination passports are no longer necessary. Ireland is following suit. Uh, Other countries in Europe are not. Germany's uh, different. And my guest knows about all of these particular situations because she has a connection with, certainly with the UK and with Germany. She's been on this program before. Katja Hoyer is an Anglo-German historian and journalist. She's a research fellow at King's College in London. Her most recent book is Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. Katja, thank you very much for taking the time on a Sunday evening in England. What's changed? What does Plan A allow? Hello, Roy. It's uh, great to be back on your uh, show. Um, uh, quite a bit, as you say, the most of the restrictions have just been dropped in England. So there's no more mandatory face masks, um, you know, the, the vaccine passports, which were only really used for major events in this country in any case, um, have gone completely. So you don't have to show that anymore if you want to go to, uh, you know, theatres and, and concerts and things like that. Um, face masks and schools have also been dropped um, and even the recommendation to work from home if possible uh, has gone so people have been urged to go back into the office so things feel at the moment pretty much like back to a normal whatever that is um, but having said that I mean there are still quite a lot of people who 
um, you know, are wearing masks um, voluntarily now. Um, the only exception to that is actually London transport, where where they're still compulsory. So, um, if if I were in England right now and uh, was going to go out and just I don't know, go to a mall, go for a walk, go somewhere where there are people, go to a restaurant. I wouldn't be required to, A, have a passport, vaccination passport, a proof of vaccination, and I wouldn't be required to wear a mask. Is that correct? That's right, yes. Um, like I said, the only exception is London Transport because yeah. the mayor of London has decided to keep them. But yes, other than that, you don't have to. People still do, on the whole. Right. It depends a little bit where you are. Um, but say if, you walk, if you're walking into a supermarket in most um, areas, uh, I'd say from experience about 80% or so of people are still wearing them. Um, but you don't have to. Is this at all a political issue? Are the opposition parties in uh, in Parliament challenging the decision taken by the Conservatives and Boris Johnson, or is there and public health officials, or is there general acceptance of this change to uh, Schedule A or Plan A? Well, it's become a bit of a political issue because um, you know this whole Partygate thing, where, where Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, is supposed to have um, what is investigated at the moment to what extent he broke lockdown rules himself at Number Ten. Um, during the first lockdown um, back in 2020. And because of that, um, he has kind of been bounced into making these announcements earlier than than anticipated um, because his own um, kind of backbenchers, a, a large section of his own Conservative Party, were in favour of loosening the restrictions earlier um, than a lot of health officials were advising. And so many people felt at the time that he announced it to, you know, sort of distract from his own... Um, problems. Um, but nonetheless, I don't detect there to be a, a kind of huge amount of kind of anxiety or fear from, from the people, certainly, that I... Okay. So so the public response has been, I take it then, fairly positive. Uh, were people following restrictions before the mask edict uh, and the passport edict were dropped? Were they, were, they, were they wearing masks, by and large? I would say, the, yeah, I would say by and large, yes. I mean, it does a little bit depend on age, so it seems to have been a, a stronger... Um, Kind of resistance towards those measures from from younger people um but equally uh you know it's a regional thing a little bit as well i, I always feel I, I live just outside of london so going into london i always felt people are, are less compliant or were less compliant with the measures than, than they were outside of it um but on the whole most people as i say are still doing it even now um even though there's no um kind of law anymore that tells them they have to okay so um, you're Anglo-German, and uh, you were in Germany last month. I understand. Mm. What, what's it like in Germany? What's the what's the what's the rule? What are the regulations in Germany? Well, it depends a bit because it's a federal state, so the you know it's it sort of got handed down largely a lot of the measures to the individual sixteen states that Germany is made up of. Um, but on the whole, I, I was quite shocked because I, you know, kind of living in England most of the time, hadn't really got used to you know kind of really strict measures because we never really had them as strict as Germany has got them. I mean, I, I went over there for Christmas and tried to buy some Christmas baubles in a shop in the middle of the Thuringian forest, you know, in the middle of nowhere, basically, what went into that shop and, and was told I needed um, a filter mask, um, my vaccine passport, my actual passport to prove that the vaccine passport was mine. Um, yeah, just to go into a shop to buy a Christmas bauble. So it, it just seemed like the complete, you know, opposite of Britain in many ways. And those restrictions have not been lifted. So Germany is still extremely cautious um, and this goes for ordinary shops apart from supermarkets but all other kind of retail shops um, restaurants even public transport you need to show that you're vaccinated or that you've got a valid test from that day like with you 
okay. um, to show that you're even going onto a bus or a train. So, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, um, yeah, at the other end of the spectrum. So, so who's more relaxed, the British people or the, or the English people or the German people? Just generally, I mean. Right. <laughs> well, in that respect, certainly the the English. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a strong compliance with that in Germany as well, which I don't think you could ever do that in England without people being being sort of you know feeling that their liberties are taken away. Whilst Germans kind of just shrugged their shoulders and went fine if that's the rule, then let's do it. <laughs> um, so culturally, it's quite a difference yeah. there, I think. Dan McTagg joins us. Canadians for Affordable Energy President, also 18 years a member of Parliament, a Liberal member of Parliament with uh, Jean Chrétien and the Paul Martin governments. Dan, before we talk about uh, fuel prices, and boy, they're going up, uh, before we talk about that, what's your sense about what's going on in, uh, in, in the nation's capital? You spent almost two decades there as a member of, uh, of Parliament, and when you hear about what took place at the National War Memorial and uh, the st- what was done to the Terry Fox statue, you know, that's just absolutely reprehensible, disgusting behavior. Yeah, you know, it is extraordinarily uh, silly, stupid, uh, beyond uh, excusable uh, to have had either of those events take place. Um, I appreciate it's a large crowd. I appreciate that uh, there are a lot of frustrations out there, but there are certain things you don't do. But I'm not so sure that you're going to get in a crowd of tens of thousands of people everybody who is, you know, level-headed. And uh, obviously there are some elements, that, as in any demonstration, uh, who uh, have a tendency to take things a little too far. Uh, but I think it's important not to lose sight of what this is all about and that this is really an example, a demonstration of extreme frustration in Canada. Um, with, uh, you know, it, it may be a minority, it may be, you know, uh, somewhere near half and half, but there, it, it's important for Ottawa, and I mean political Ottawa, but also the city of Ottawa itself, to be remindful that respect runs two ways. And that, uh, you know, what we're seeing here is full evidence of people who've done very well, government jobs, sinecures, living off the taxpayer, working very hard as they are, while other people are suffering. And, uh, you know, if Ottawa was insensitive to this, it's certainly a reality that's been brought to them. Um, unfortunately, it will likely only be for these two events uh, of the defacing uh, of and disrespect of both the cenotaph and uh, the Terry Fox statue uh, is pretty much the takeaway everyone will, will have. Unfortunately, it's going to continue to uh, paper over a much larger frustration in this country. The well, likes of well which, here's, uh, here's, what, here's what they could have done. And I'll accept them when you have thousands of people who are massing in one area, that you're always going to have some uh, who are going to step outside the lines. And that was expected. This, this, this was not unexpected. But what I would have expected is of people who were there to genuinely protest their concerns. If you see the National War Memorial being desecrated, if you see the Terry Fox statue being uh, assaulted or uh, junk hung on it, if you see the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, if you see if you see these particular national um, memorials and treasures Treasure, being yeah. assaulted, do something about it. Yeah. Don't stand there and just jeer and cheer or whatever was going on. Stop it. Stop it from happening. There's enough of you there to do that. And I think in any different time, oh, I shouldn't say this, but maybe at a different time, 
at a different emotional peak or level, people would have stepped up, at least I hope so, to say, this is not going to happen. We're not going to let this happen because this, these, these, these particular areas, these memorials are significant to us as, a, as Canadians and as yes, a country. Only takes a couple of yahoos to ruin. Uh, yeah, but what I'm saying is that what I'm saying, Dan, is that people who were there so seeing it going on, and who disapproved what was going on, I'm I'm hoping there were many, should have stepped up and stopped it. Perhaps they did. I don't know, Roy. I, I do know that the uh, we are focusing on something like this that is extraordinarily important, but we're seeing not seeing the forest for the trees. And I, I guess this is not something that I uh, that I that makes any Canadian happy. Uh, yes, responsible people should have come to the to the point, but I have not uh, in my time this week spending quite a bit on uh, dealing with fuel and energy issues. I have note noted there's a lot of tweaking of the noses, the Speaker of the House, the threats of violence. The we tended to focus on what this thing wasn't yeah. as opposed to no, what I get it was. It. I, I don't That's, disagree with unfortunately, that. Unfortunately, they've lost the plot. Yeah, and and uh, the frustration level. I mean, I see it in emails, I see it in texts, I hear it in phone calls. Uh, this has been going on for some time, obviously, and it's been growing, and it's been getting louder and more insistent. And uh, it's it, there has to be a response from the federal government. Now, I don't expect the government to, to step up and say, well, we're just going to do away with the vaccine mandate. They won't do that, as you well know. But there has to be. People have to be listened to, and they have to be heard. Um, or I'm assuming – I shouldn't put words in your mouth. Do you think there's a chance that – the uh, the government the, the government of Mr. Trudeau will say okay we've heard you we've reconsidered we've thought about it we're going to lift the vaccine mandate because we agree with the protesters and we agree with the oh. Canadian Chamber of Commerce and we agree with uh, you know the various bodies and the premiers who've said the timing of this of this vaccine mandate is terrible do you think there's a chance no no and this, they go. are hard left in their views they're convinced this is uh, the way to you know, work with a, a, a determined group of people out there who want uh, complete lockdowns, who don't care. As I mentioned earlier, people who get paid for sitting at home, do their work from home, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are people who don't have to worry about uh, how to make payroll, how to, you know, keep their business alive, how to be able to pay their bills at the end of the month, how to look after their families. There's a lot of frustration here. It's not just about, obviously, vaccines, and I think that's where... Uh, this government has, I wouldn't just said fail to appreciate this. I think this government has occur- encouraged people uh, to to act in a way and to to take their uh, their views out in public demonstration in the dead cold of winter uh, in a very inhospitable place. Yeah, if it's a uh, po- Dan, if it's a, if it's a political calculation, and it may well be, uh, if it's a political calculation, they also know that polling shows nationally that vaccinated Canadians don't necessarily think very highly of unvaccinated Canadians, and that's pitting Canadian against Canadian, and here goes my email again. Um, You know, I'm going to have a thousand extra emails in the next 60 minutes. That's fine. Express your thoughts of you, and I'll read what I can on the air. Look, we were going to talk about gasoline, but I wanted to talk about this because this is gasoline on the national fire. Can you stick around a little bit? I can. Because I can't let you go without talking about what's going to happen, what's happening (laughs) with gas prices. I, I had a guy a couple of weeks ago, I think I mentioned it on the air, I was putting gas in my car, and this young man stopped behind me, was fueling uh, his car. And he, he looked at me, and, you know, he got out of his car. He was doing something. I was telling them, the pump's going ding. Well, they don't go ding anymore, but, it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, I wish they did. 
but uh, but he, he looked at me. He said, "How long are you going to be here?" And I said, "That is a very good question." <laughs> and and he said, "He said, how much gas are you putting in the car?" <clears throat> Excuse me, and I had a fairly long trip ahead of me, and I said, "I'm just going to fill it up, and I'm going to close my eyes." <laughs> and put in my PIN number <laughs> and grab the receipt and not look at it and stick it in my wallet and hit the road. I was looking at some of the gas prices in uh, in, in cities across uh, the country where we broadcast. In Vancouver, I saw a high of a buck 63.9. Edmonton, a buck 39.9 was the high, a buck 37.9 in Regina, Winnipeg, a buck 39.9 as well. Hamilton was uh, a buck 43, uh, Toronto, a buck 53.9. Uh, and uh, gasoline and diesel are increasing in price. What is it, at a rate of three to four cents in the last week? Is is that am I right or wrong? Yeah, di- diesel's up uh, eight cents on average in the past week alone. And you know what, Roy? Two weeks ago to the day, you and I discussed uh, what's going to be in Eastern Canada all time record prices, and here we are. No one else followed it, but uh, thankfully, uh, at least we got that out here, and that was uh, the first opportunity to warn people of what was coming. And of course. Uh, that warning is followed with this warning. Um, we're not through this yet. Uh, prices are moving, whether we like it or not, uh, here in Ontario. If you don't like a dollar fifty three point nine here in the GTA, uh, if you don't like a dollar sixty nine point nine or in uh, Vancouver, a dollar thirty nine point nine in Calgary, you're not going to like an average price of a dollar sixty five at some point between now and uh, just after uh, the uh, May two four weekend. Uh, wh- how much? A dollar sixty-five average. So average. Average price. Another fifteen cents for everybody. So there are many vehicles that, because of the manufacturer's specifications, you have to use premium fuel. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the difference is usually anywhere between seven and eleven cents a liter, depending where you are in the country. But of course, we know that's where a lot of gas stations make their money. Um, they charge 32 cents, 25 cents if you're lucky. Uh, so that's where the money's being made, especially Quebec, Ontario, and places west. Uh, Maritimes, not so much. They have a controlled system there, but uh, the reality is that uh, as more cars are going to premium to uh, to bring about uh, better fuel efficiency, and they really are fuel efficient, mm-hmm. it, uh, it doesn't uh, lessen the sting. So today in Toronto, uh, uh, I was uh, filling up and saw uh, premium at 180 Four point nine. Hmm. So, not very long before that's going to start to hit all of us sooner or later. But uh, hey, if we go to one sixty-five, then you're two dollars a liter, and that doesn't include so, what uh, Mr. Putin does. So, so yeah. So let me ask you this then. I won't ask you why it's gone up because I do that all the time. I will ask you: Could this have been avoided? Could this have been stopped? Is there a way that we, with all of our energy supplies and reserves in this country, could be better off? than other countries that don't have what we have. Could we be better off? Could this have been avoided? Well, the two, an- the two questions, yeah, the, the two questions uh, can be answered in one, in one. If Canada wasn't so busy blocking pipelines for oil and its natural gas, uh, we'd have a stronger Canadian dollar. The same policy that is blocking pipelines, the green agenda, the climate agenda, is also adding significant taxes uh, to the price of fuel. So you have your 10 cent carbon tax in most provinces with HST. You have a weak Canadian dollar because we're not selling enough of our number one export raw materials like oil and gas. Mm. So that's why the Canadian dollar is so, so weak and it, it, it drives up the price of everything, including food. But 
so the, the two things are related. If we backed off a little bit on our green policies, as they're forced to do in Europe, where they're now burning coal rather than letting windmills and solar panels get them electricity, if we were to back off on this, I think you would see prices drop dramatically. And if we were to open up our pipelines, if uh, we get with a magic wand, go back to 2015 and uh, have the Northern Gateway and Energy East pipelines, we'd be saving about 30 to 40 Yeah, well, you'd have to convince Quebec to allow that pipeline through the province, which is really interesting because the people of Quebec, as we've heard from the Montreal Economic Institute, the people of Quebec want oil uh, pipelines and they want their oil from Western Canada. Not so much the Quebec government, but the people of Quebec have said that. Now, look, you and I both know that governments will always try to fill the coffers, and one of the most available um, sources is the consumer's credit card. Mm-hmm. So, they're, so they're, they're, they're always going to do this. Now, if I can just park that comment for half a second and ask you this question before I forget about it. So a buck sixty-five is going to be the average price per liter by the time we get to the May 2-4 weekend. Is it going to drop when we're in the summer months? Will we get some relief? And if so, how much? Uh, or do well, we not no. know? No, because I think oil prices are not reflecting the low inventories of oil globally. And those low, low inventories are because you have people like Mark Carney, but around the world, woke capitalists saying no more investment in fossil fuels. At a time in which the demand is surging, they've restricted production, and that's created a real shortage. So, uh, summer, uh, all of 2022. And I have to look at the two factors. One, on April the 1st, in good part of Canada, we get the increase uh, in our carbon tax of 2.5 cents a litre. Even BC gets its from its own provincial carbon tax. And then at the end of the year, in other words, in December, we get a four cent increase in the second carbon tax, the so-called clean fuel standard. Uh, and in between that, of course, during summer, we have the summer blends of gasoline. And I'm not even, again, I mentioned earlier, I'm not even calculating, you know, the risk of Mr. Putin, uh, you know, being being a turkey and uh, trying to attack uh, Ukraine. If that happens, then, uh, I mean, Roy, a buck sixty-five will be seen as a bargain if you can find fuel in Canada. We're going to be talking about that situation a little later on the program today. Um... So we're really stuck uh, with what we have, and people are going to have to make the best of it. And, you know, my silly definition about of inflation, which Philip Cross, who was the chief statistician for, uh, for StatsCan, told us yesterday, now the McDonnell laurie Institute senior fellow, told us yesterday is not 4.8%, like StatsCan is saying it is, but it's more like 6% or higher. That's what Mr. Cross told us yesterday. So, yeah. so we're going to just have to live with, with the reality. And so my silly definition was, of inflation was, when you're going to the gas station and the grocery store in the same morning, and you can't afford to fill up it either. Look, uh, it's not going to end well. And there's nobody out there, including the Bank of Canada, who kept you know, holding to the idea that we have uh, transitory inflation. Yeah. We're going to look awfully stupid at the end of the year when uh, inflation is up much higher, especially when you consider housing, okay. clothing, food, and energy. Let's talk to Professor Lubomir Luchuk. He is a um, political science professor at Royal Military College. His new book is Operation Payback, Soviet Disinformation and Alleged Nazi War Criminals in North America. Professor Luchuk, uh, would you just provide us with an overall assessment of the situation as you see it today? How significant, how serious, how, how alarming is what's going on right now? I think from my perspective, the most alarming thing is that Mr. Putin has been able to demonstrate that the West does not really support Ukraine to the extent that Ukrainians believed once upon a time that it did. Uh, 
The Ukrainians, when they gave up the nuclear weapons in 1994, had the expectation that their political sovereignty and territorial integrity would be respected. And in fact, they had the assurances. Now you notice the word I'm using, assurances, not promises, not pledges, but just kind of a a gentleman's agreement that the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Russian Federation would respect the territorial status quo. Uh, They believe that, so they gave up their nuclear weapons. They have ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, been reorienting themselves toward the West um, during the Orange Revolution, during the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. Uh, That, of course, has provoked a response from the KGB men in the Kremlin, and that response has been uh, the military invasion of Hold on a sec. The military invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russian forces in Crimea uh, in 2014, the illegal occupation of Crimea, and then subsequently, of course, the attack in the east. So Ukrainians have now been fighting a war, a defensive war, for eight years with tens of thousands of people internally displaced. In fact, some people say as many as a million and a half, uh, over 15,000 casualties. And although Canada and the United States and Great Britain have been rotating instructors through places like Yavoriv and Kamenets Podolsk, where I've I've visited those places, and our troops are learning, by the way, from the battle-hardened Ukrainians. After all, it's a two-way street. These are all military professionals, and it certainly is a fascinating thing to watch how one side teaches the other and the other side teaches the other. But the reality of it is, I think now that things have gotten much more tense, uh, Ukrainians expected more. So Canada's recent contributions are pretty modest. I'm being very generous in saying that. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a great disappointment. And it's not because that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, there's 1.4 million Ukrainians and they've got a big, strong lobby and, you know, the government should respond. No, that's not it at all. Ukraine should be getting the support of the West and of Canada, the United States, Great Britain, and so on, because it's the right thing to do. They're facing a bully. They're facing a, the KGB man in the Kremlin who has an imperial project. And if he teaches the world, if he teaches Ukraine and all the former states of East Central Europe, the Warsaw Pact, former Soviet republics, that the West does not have their back, wow, that is a serious problem. Yeah. That's a very serious problem. Well, Canada has really not distinguished itself by uh, by flatly stating, the Prime Minister flatly stating, but the answer to this is diplomacy, not warfare. And so Canada has decided that regardless of the uh, the expectation or the pleas or the request of Ukraine, we're not going to send you uh, what they call lethal weapons. I mean, that's redundant anyway. Um, we're going to send you non-lethal equipment. So here's some, uh, here's some goggles and here's some helmets and We'll send you some instructors, but we're going to station them where there's not likely to be any fighting. It's not particularly a distinguished response, is it? No, it's not. It's very disappointing. And, and, and you just said it, I think. Uh, a gun can be a defensive weapon. It can be an offensive weapon. And the thing here then to look at it and say is, who invaded who? Did Ukraine attack the Russian Federation? No. The Russian Federation attacked Ukraine in 2014. Everybody knows that. The little green men everybody talked about for a while, but that's fiction, and we all know it. The Russian Federation has launched a war of aggression against Ukraine. Ukraine is a country in Europe. Ukraine has been peaceful. Ukrainian soldiers have participated in peacekeeping missions around the world. They've supported Canadians in Afghanistan. Who rescued the Afghan refugees at the end of that debacle? Ukrainian soldiers. That's right. right. Uh, Ukrainians didn't shoot down MH17 and slaughter all those 
Europeans, not to mention one Canadian. That was the Russians. Ukrainians didn't bomb Syria on behalf of uh, the Assad regime and, and create one of the greatest refugee mass migrations in recent times. That was the Russians, right? Ukrainians didn't put a bounty on American soldiers' heads in Afghanistan. That was the Russians. So here we have this kind of you know, situation where a good partner of Canada, of the West, a country that since 1991 has been moving in the direction of the West, where there's a whole new generation, and this is a very important thing, there's a generation born after 1991. So people born after the collapse of the Soviet Union had no experience of the Soviet times. These are young men and women who I've had the privilege of meeting, both in the military of Ukraine, but also just in the, in the streets of Kiev and Lviv and so on. They want to have normal lives. They want to be Europeans. They want to travel. They want to study. They want to interact with the rest of the world. Mr. Putin fears that. He fears a liberal democratic state on his borders called Ukraine that Russians will look to with envy. He didn't like it when Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania joined NATO. That, that goes back to 2004. So the Russian Federation is already up against NATO, if you like. Yeah. Uh, he didn't like the Warsaw Pact countries all fleeing to the West. You know, they, everybody talks about NATO enlargement. NATO grew because the countries of East Central Europe fled west. It's not NATO heading east. It's the people's well, nation, well, Poland. Well, you know, as, as we've often said, the wall was built to keep people in, the, uh, in, well, in East Germany, not to keep the West Germans out. Well, actually, you've got it right. Absolutely bang on, Roy. Just think about it. For all of its faults, and we, you know, you and I both know that the United States is not perfect, but every year hundreds of thousands of people from around the world try to get into the United States and even into Canada, right? right. We know that. Yeah. Who tries to get into the Russian Federation? Probably Name one. Very <laughs> Name <few>. one. <laughs> I could probably find one, an American well, defector, but that would be yeah, about it. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, that, that's the point, yeah, right? Even is. Mr. Putin's daughter doesn't live in, in the Russian That's Federation. true. Professor Luchuk, we'll have to continue this conversation, uh, and we will, in the weeks to come. Uh, hopefully it My doesn't pleasure. turn into a shooting war, but... Well, well, let's hope that Mr. Putin is satisfied with having demonstrated the, the frailty and the, um, frankly, the betrayal of the West. Yeah. Ukraine, I think, has been betrayed. And, and if the Ukrainians get that sense that they are alone, right. well, they may become a porcupine state and try to defend themselves on their own, and they will certainly blunt uh, any invasion. But okay. what a horror. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.